You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast, hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson. Each month, we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you very much for giving this opportunity to come and have a talk today about our work. It's on prediction of preeclampsia. And this is about the work that's undertaken as a global network based on individual patient data meta-analysis. I'm Shakila Tangaratinam. I'm a professor of maternal and perinatal health, and I'm based at Queen Mary University of London. Just a brief background about where I come from. So uh, that's our unit, and we are a leading site for a few multi-center national trials in UK. I also am a jobbing clinician as a consultant obstetrician. I work at one of the busiest maternity units in all of Europe. It's great we deliver 17,000 babies per year because it gives us a fantastic resource of mums who are engaged in clinical research. We started our academic program in this unit about four years ago, and we've increased the recruitment from about 300 to 3,000 in these four years. Additionally, we are also involved in evidence synthesis projects, both study-level meta-analysis as well as individual patient meta-analysis. So today, I would like to talk about how we came about to setting this network, what's been the background behind it, what are our objectives to deliver through this, what are the challenges that we face, and it will be great to have your support and input at the end of the talk. So this was a question that was pre-specified by our national funder, NIHR. So our funder often chooses questions that they think are clinically important. And this particular funder, HTA, asks questions that have the potential to be translated into clinical practice in five years' time. So they are looking for answers, and they're looking for answers which can actually make an impact in my own lifetime. So they wanted to know are there any good predictors for preeclampsia? They wanted a systematic review, which is great, fine. And they also wanted a model at the end of the systematic review. So these are the questions that they have put on. And they had a wish list. So they wanted to look at the performance of the markers on their own or in combination. And they also wanted to know particular subgroups in which you can predict better particularly for early onset preeclampsia, which we know are the most severe variety. So we decided to address this through an IPD meta-analysis. So it's an individual patient data meta-analysis where you synthesize evidence by obtaining the individual data of the relevant studies. So we went back to the funder saying, it's great you want a systematic review and a standard meta-analysis, but we are not going to do that we would like to do an IPD meta-analysis. So what are the benefits of uh, such a method? Those of us who have done systematic reviews would realize the frustration when we look at the primary data that has been published. The population is very heterogeneous. It could be completely low-risk, nulliparous women, or it could be women with risk factors. And it's difficult to look at patient-level characteristics. It it's not easy to adjust for multiple tests. And again, the cutoffs are the values chosen by the 
primary authors more often. There is not the advantage of us able to choose a cutoff using continuous values. And again, the outcome is very pre-specified. Say preterm birth is less than 37 weeks, they might have data on preterm preeclampsia less than 34 weeks, but they haven't reported it. But they do have gestational age at delivery, they do have preeclampsia, and sometimes onset of preeclampsia as well. And finally, to develop a model from just what's published data, it's not possible. So an individual patient, when you obtain the individual data, it allows us to actually overcome all of these obstacles. So what had we done? We looked at how many models are there in obstetrics. We seem to be very good at generating models. We've generated around 263. And it's growing. It could be that because prediction and prognosis are felt to be doable with just any data set available in any unit, each one of us think that we have the perfect way to predict something, but we ignore what everyone has done before us in the sense we don't actually test existing models. That could be a perfectly valid model sitting out there, but we are not very good at validating it in our own data set first. So while the number of developed models keep going up, you can see the number that has been validated still remains significantly low. So we talked about the prediction of complications in preeclampsia. Again, this is a work that we have just completed on prediction of complications in women with early onset disease. It occurs in 0.5%, but accounts for 20 times the maternal mortality. And this involved 53 centers in the UK, so we developed a model. We did have blood pressure as a predictor in the model. We did have proteinuria as one of the predictors. We did have the use of antihypertensive as a predictor. And this should be published soon as a HTA report and a paper. The model, I'm not going to go into it because it's a bit outside the remit of my talk today. But what I'm trying to say is in the course of developing this model, which we also externally validated in two external data sets, we did try and address a lot of the difficulties in developing prediction models. And I had a chance to work with methodology experts in the field like Richard Riley and Carl Boons who have developed checklists on how to report prediction models. And then the other work which we have done is we have now completed an IPD meta-analysis on diet and lifestyle interventions in pregnancy. And this is an IPD meta-analysis, again funded by NIHR, involving only randomized trials. It has got data of 12,000 women. And we had more than 44 individuals who came together, and we looked at gestational weight gain as well as clinical outcomes. And we wanted to ask questions on, is there a benefit in particular subgroups? And again, the reason why I'm showing the detail is it gave us a valuable experience in bringing together collaborators, getting the primary data, and it has been incredible the amount of support that we received. And in fact, we even had some unpublished data given to us even before publication. So it was incredible the level of sharing that happened with this project. And lastly, let's see how we do for prediction of preeclampsia. About a quarter of all models in obstetrics or to predict preeclampsia. So everyone's trying to find an answer, most of us are trying to. And the number of variables vary, most of them between five to six. But what about their quality? A lot of them, a third of them, are case control. Validation of the model internally has been done in only about 20%. 
None of them validated at the time when we did the review in their own work. And calibration is not just sufficient to say, can you discriminate those who had the disease or who are going to have the disease or not? You also want to see, does the model calibrate well? If you say an X proportion are going to have the outcome for that particular risk, 60 to 80%, you also need to say, is it the same risk that's observed? And a model should also perform the same way if only 0 to 5% are predicted then a similar proportion should also be the observed risk. So that's not provided in many of the models. And then we look to see the reviews on prediction of preeclampsia. Gets a bit more disturbing here because we all seem to be generating <coughs> systematic reviews. More and more of these, about there are 31 systematic reviews looking to see the predictive value of clinical characteristics, 11 on biophysical markers, which is ultrasound, 62 on bio... These are not primary studies. These are systematic reviews, not just a narrative review. In fact, we also have been part of the team doing some of these reviews of our own. And therefore, we went to the funder and said, look, we really don't fancy doing another systematic review on top of all of the 70 systematic reviews that are sitting there. We really want to make something more meaningful with the money they give us, not to do one more review and just sits in the very bottom of the PubMed search that comes up. So what do we aim to do? We aim to develop as well as validate prediction models for early onset preeclampsia. None of the prediction models did have sufficient number of cases to robustly evaluate this very rare outcome. We also wanted to look for late onset as well as any onset preeclampsia. So this is what we had done. We first did a systematic review and we updated and identified the primary studies. And at the time of applying for the proposal, we had identified 61 primary studies with over 400,000 women. And we wanted to look at the accuracy of predictors. And then we wanted to see how the existing models perform. We do not want to ignore the work that's done before us. So the next step is to validate existing models to see if they perform as well as people say they do. But that should be a reason for clinicians not using it. There are so many models out there, but I cannot see a single unit that actually applies this model in the care of their patients. So do they perform as well as have been reported? And if they don't, then we would like to improve the existing models. Only if no models exist would we then develop our own model. We would like to look at the subgroup effects. Does the accuracy of the model differ according to the risk of the mum according to the trimester of testing and also look at the added value of novel biomarkers so these are markers not available in clinical practice but do they actually add to the accuracy of the model so these are our question components so in addition to the primary outcome of preeclampsia we also wanted to look at morbidity outcomes both in the mother and in the fetus so this is our status at the moment. We are now two months into this proposal, and these are our collaborators who have joined the network. IPIC network is supported by existing global networks, so we really do not want to duplicate the efforts or to reinvent the wheel. So for example, we work together with IPD Prepare, and they have shared their existing IPD with us. 
We work uh, closely with CoLab, with Chris's team. Uh, Jenny Myers is on board from the SCOPE cohort. So we're trying our best to bring together researchers in this field and build on what's already happened, maybe to standardize definitions, standardize the variables to get something meaningful out of what's been done. Additionally, we do have the support of large cohorts, the Bonn in Canada, we have the Scandinavian cohorts as well. This is just a brief idea of the list of predictors that we have pre-selected. Obviously, once we map, we will be able to have a better idea of what are available and what are not. So if you look at where we are at the moment, out of over 90 whom we contacted, only one lost data. No one has refused, but there are some who don't answer us. I'm sure they look at a few emails and uh, maybe it's an automatic delete button. We have received 25 data sets physically, which gives us access to about 130,000 mothers. So if you look at the characteristic of the data sets, over 60,000 pregnancies, we have all three predictors as clinical, biochemical, as well as ultrasound markers. And if you look at individual predictors, you can see the clinical predictors are the highest. These are individual predictors only data sets. And if you look at what models exist, unfortunately, out of the 69 models, only 18 exist in a format that can be validated. So it just shows it doesn't really help for uh, juniors out there. If you do publish prediction models, and it's brilliant especially, please provide us with the formula so someone else can actually validate and test it's as good as you say it is. Because out of 69, we only have 18 models that we can actually validate to see if the accuracy is as good as they say it is. They provide a variety of variables. All right, so what are the benefits? I'll talk about the benefits and then end with the challenges. For the individual researcher, of course, it raises visibility of their work. They're part of the collaborative network. And from our previous IPD, we already have realized the fruits in the sense just being the network is a good leverage for individual collaborators when they apply for future funding where they can use some of the data that's been collected. For the scientific community, rather than all of us trying to do the same thing in 100 different ways, it helps that we can come together, pool our efforts, standardize them, and try to provide results in a relatively short period of time. And of course, funding, trying to do such a large primary trial or study is not possible. And therefore, IPT meta-analysis is better than trying to do a large prospective study. It is not a replacement for a large prospective study. Obviously, that is the best but it provides answers which will not be provided otherwise. Challenges. Yes, of course, there is, we are all busy. There is a lack of time and resources. Those have been the main factors that have been quoted by the researchers in difficulties in sharing the data. So we minimize them by saying we are happy to accept the anonymized data in any format. And the other one is the ownership and intellectual credit. There is always a fear that the work that the individual has done or the team has done would be masked within the whole network. We acknowledge the efforts that have been put in and everyone does continue to have ownership of the data and all collaborators are offered authorship in it. And again, as I said, this full data does not stop with this project. So it could be another collaborator in two years' time want to use the data that's already been cleaned to ask a different question. So it's a fantastic resource to be used in continuum. 
this is biggest challenge for us. The data from individual studies, they vary. Just because we're getting individual data does not mean that they suddenly become homogeneous. So we actually have to a priori define what quality that we are expecting, how do we actually standardize so that we remain meaningful at the time of synthesis. We haven't had a problem of the, result, the data giving to us not matching the results that have been published. That's a bit of a tricky field, but in that case, we are always willing to approach the investigator in the first instance. I'm sure that's usually a, a very easy answer for that. They come in various formats, so John Alate, who is a coordinator for the IPIC, has got the challenge of dealing with a variety of formats in which data comes to us. And response to queries, as I said, we keep chasing the investigators. We do appreciate their time, but we are also faced with our own timelines. Ethical and legal, it varies. Do we need ethics approval? Uh, again, it varies according to the country and the institution. Say, for example, in the UK for IPD meta-analysis, as long as the data are anonymized, we don't. In countries outside, for example, in Australia, some institutions provide as long as the data are used with the same ethos in which it was provided. Looking at the similar question, some do go to their regulatory body to get permission, but we do not need to go back to the participant. Usually the local ethics board are happy to sort this out. The data still continue to be owned by the individuals, so we will not be using the data beyond what has been promised within the context of the study. So that's our core management group. That's our statistics team. And our co-applicants, Jenny Myers here, is here giving our input into that. We also will be validating it into another external cohort as well. And I've already touched upon the publication. So we do keep it very transparent. We have a specific publication committee as with any large collaborative networks. We are very keen to be transparent in how we deal with things. There is also an individual data access committee. So we are open to anyone outside the network who want to access the data as long as they can give us a proposal. Thank you very much. Thanks for your time. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com AMJ Perinatology. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next month when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Perinatology.